Well, good morning, Calvary Bible Church. I pray that besides, obviously, um, valuing the corporate gathering, which should be the first thing that we should do, we should value our corporate gathering together, that during the week, that over these last few weeks and months, that you've actually taken um, a good, uh, aggressive approach to staying connected uh, in the body of Christ. Um, you know, when we remove ourselves, we, we isolate ourselves within our isolation, okay? Um, I think we rob ourselves greatly of the privilege of being connected to the body of Christ and, and that mutual encouragement that comes when we do that. And so I want to encourage you to continue to fight hard, obviously, one, for our corporate gathering to be together, whether it's here presently, physically, or virtually, but also that you work hard during the week to make sure that you're staying connected to other believers, all right? It's so, so important for us to, to do that together and not to isolate ourselves, all right? Uh, this week was so encouraging uh, for me to touch base with, with uh, many of you, and I know that our elders would say the same thing within their particular uh, shepherding groups, but it was so encouraging to talk to many of you who, obviously, you know, everybody's going through a lot of challenges. We've all experienced um, this pandemic that is countrywide, worldwide, and so there are the challenges generally with regards or connected to, the, to those issues, but also we've experienced some challenges personally, I know for many of us. Um, whether those are familial challenges, personal challenges, whatever. And this week it was just so encouraging to hear uh, for many of you um, just what the Lord is teaching you and those things that are anchoring your heart and soul to Him even in the midst of ever-changing circumstances. Some of you are going through personal spiritual battles. Some of you are going through sicknesses, personal, or maybe somebody in your family is very sick. Um, others of you I know um, have been furloughed. Uh, as to your job, some of you have been laid off, some of you have been let go completely, and I know that there are some financial struggles that you've experienced as well. And you know, it's during those moments, of course, when we face challenges like that, that really our beliefs are tested, aren't they? What we believe about God, what we believe about the gospel, what we believe about ourselves and what is happening in our world, those beliefs are tested when we go through various trials in our lives. And I just want to encourage you, it's been motivating for me, especially this week, to hear the testimony from many of the brethren in this body talking about how the Lord is your strength. You know, brother, this is what's going on, but I know God is with me. He's never abandoned me. He's my provider. He's my protector. I know that He's going to provide for all of our family's needs. His Word tells me so. I can only lean upon His promises. It's been so encouraging to hear many of you speak that way. And it highlights, doesn't it, the importance of right beliefs and firm convictions that are so important for us to hold on to in the Christian life. We need to have right beliefs and right convictions. You know, the Apostle Paul knew something of this, of having the right kind of beliefs and convictions. He writes this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love Romans 8.38, for I am convinced. He says, I am persuaded. The sense of the verb there is, I stand convinced. I stand persuaded. Paul's belief, his conviction was that nothing can separate him from the love of God. And in 2 Timothy 
chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 12, he says this. He is in jail. This was his second Roman imprisonment. And from what we know from church history, I don't think he ever got out of this Roman imprisonment. Um, he was awaiting his impending death. And he says this in 2 Timothy 1.12 concerning his suffering. For this reason, I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced or persuaded. I stand persuaded and convinced that he, God, is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What is it that Paul had entrusted to God until that day? His very life, his eternal well-being. And so Paul held firmly to certain beliefs or convictions about God, even in the face of suffering and his trials. He knew something about trials. And it seems like Paul, a human just like us, operating in the power of the Spirit of God, Paul was stabilized and anchored in his life by certain convictions about God and the Christian life in the face of great suffering. And by God's grace, it seems that those convictions were activated, especially during times of great crises for the Apostle Paul. A man just like us, operating according to the Spirit of God, by the strength of the Spirit of God. Beloved, what are your convictions this morning? What are those beliefs concerning God, His promises, the Christian life, the things that are happening in the world around us, What are those beliefs that anchor you and stabilize you during these ever-changing times? These historic times of great crises. What are those beliefs that you're willing to pay the price for right now? What are those beliefs that you cling to regardless of how much circumstances change, it seems, by the hour in our present day? What are those beliefs about God, His promises that you hold on to, that that energize you, that fuel you, that motivate you? You see, if we're going to spiritually thrive personally and together right now, we must be motivated by the right kinds of convictions concerning God and His Word. And last week, this is what we began to consider together. We began to look at four of six convictions that I believe, as as I speak to many believers And my own struggles and other church leaders, not only in our country, but around the world, friends that I have. I believe that these convictions are things that we must cling to in the midst of our current crises that are very easy for us to forget about right now. This is not an exhaustive list of convictions, but they're especially applicable right now. And when I search my own heart and counsel other people, these are convictions, beliefs that I see falling off the radar on a regular basis, but that are very basic And very energizing for us, spiritually speaking, when we keep them in mind and we cling to these. We saw last week conviction number one, the importance of love toward others right now. And no matter what's taking place, there is so much hatred, so much bitterness, so much resentment, so many unreconciled relationships in our world, so much unforgiveness. And in the face of such crises, the world is looking for examples of what true Love looks like. We have an amazing opportunity as a church. Because the conception of love that we see in the world is a wishy-washy, ambiguous, godless kind of definition of love right now. 
And yet God has shown us the perfect portrait and picture of truth and love working together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Christ is our example. So what an opportunity we have to show Christ-like love right now, to show the world this is what love, given substance by the truth, looks like right now. The church can be on the forefront of that. Conviction number two, the devotion to God's word. The devotion to God's word. The word of God reveals who God is. The word of God is the means along with prayer, the primary means along with prayer, through which we can cultivate a relationship with God. And so important for us right now, during these times of crises, is that you and I would be people who draw near to God through his word. If there is one lesson that I want you to bank on that God is teaching you and I right now in the midst of this crisis, it's this. I want you to draw near to me. I want you to spend much time sitting at my feet, learning from me, speaking back to me through prayer, communicating with me. God wants us to draw near to him. And I'll tell you what, something is shaping your mind right now. There's no neutrality. It's either the world and everything that you're watching in the world, or it's the Word of God because you are proactively pursuing being saturated with Scripture. So what is shaping you right now? Is it the Word of God? Are you cultivating a daily relationship with God through daily Bible intake? Some of us have just lost sight of the basics of just getting into the Word and just reading the Word. Tasting to see that the Lord is good through His Word and through prayer. It must be our conviction, brothers and sisters, to be devoted to the Word of God. Thirdly, conviction number three, the reality of spiritual warfare. We must not be naive. There is something always greater going on than the physical, visible stuff that we see in the world around us. There's spiritual warfare taking place. And so, and this war is fought on the level of thinking and ideas of thinking fortresses. And so God wants us to be exposed to his word because ultimately it's about spiritual warfare and we need the sword of the spirit shaping us, informing us. There are spiritual forces at work. There's a spiritual battle right now going on for your mind and for your heart. There's a spiritual battle going on right now in your marriage. There is a spiritual war going on right now in your parenting with your kids. There is a spiritual war going on right now, even amongst us as brethren, to see if we are going to even preserve unity in the midst of all of this crisis. That's an issue ultimately of spiritual war. Do you recognize the reality of spiritual warfare right now? Fourth, fourth, the need to be Christ-like. The need to be Christ-like or holy. We don't get a pass, brothers and sisters, right now, to function and operate according to the flesh, according to our evil desires, because we're going through hard things. God, even in the midst of what's taking place, even in the face of such crises that we have experienced, expects you and I, by His grace and by the power of the Spirit of God, to be holy people, set apart people from sin, reserved for Christ and for His purposes. He wants us to be Christ-like. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are not to adopt the thinking of the world. We are not to to follow after the values of the world. We are not to to drink what's being handed to us by our culture as far as secular ideologies. 
We are to put those things aside and be like Jesus, personally and corporately. The most powerful thing that we can do right now is to have a godly, Christ-like witness before the world. Just look at our country. Just look at what's taking place right now. So much chaos, so much hatred, so much sin, so much exploitation, so much injustice. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be holy like God is holy and be just people following after his example. And I pray that we would take that very seriously. And it's a battle every single day, isn't it? To be like Jesus, to respond like Christ. And so there's need even for daily repentance and confession on our part. And I pray that we are doing this before the Lord, diligently as God's people. So we've talked about the importance of love, living by the conviction of devotion to God's Word, the reality of spiritual warfare, the need to be Christ-like or holy. Fifth, fifth conviction. I want to call us to consider today the conviction of the primacy of the gospel. The primacy of the gospel, the conviction that the gospel is what is most important. In fact, that's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, specifically talking about the resurrection, which is a capstone to the the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, of first importance is the resurrection. The gospel is of first importance. And I want you to see this. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I got a little smarter this morning based upon last week. I bought these weights to kind of hold my, the pages of my Bible down. Last week, I think I, my notes started flying all over the place. How many of you caught that? You guys are so gracious. You guys didn't even laugh last week. I was pretty pathetic. I was the guy, by the way, recording in the background. If you watch that on, on live stream, okay? I didn't even know that anybody saw me back there. I don't know why I thought I was being so inconspicuous, but... People texted me, was that you in the background recording? And of course, then I posted it on Facebook, so everybody knew about what I did. Anyway, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Lots of people right now looking for answers in all of the wrong places. Social development, new legislation, government, politicians, even in the exploitation of others. But none of those things solve the problems of our society. What is the answer? What is the answer? And I think it's no different than the answer that Paul gave here to the Romans. You guys understand, Rome was very similar to our society today. It was a pagan, polytheistic, immoral, and idolatrous culture. And Paul wrote Romans not only to express his desire to see these Roman believers that he hadn't had an opportunity to see, but also to impart the most important thing to him and to his heart and the most important thing that needed to be at the top of their priority list, and that is the gospel. Notice Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And he expands on this gospel of God which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, Paul says, this gospel, Roman believers, is nothing new. Prophet after prophet foretold of this good news. And who is it centered on? Verse 3, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now that is a mouthful right there. That is pointing to the reality that Jesus was God's son. He is deity. He is God. And not only that, but he was fully man. 
He is the God-man. So the gospel centers on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. Verse 4, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, his resurrection was proof that everything that he said was true concerning himself. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. In other words, Paul says, this is my stewardship. This divine favor has been granted to me. What? To be a preacher of the gospel. This is a stewardship given to me from God. Look down in verse 14. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, listen to this, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He hadn't seen them yet. And the one thing that Paul wants to do is bear fruit amongst these believers and also preach the gospel there in Rome. He says, I'm eager. That has the idea of, of, of I'm itching with anticipation. I have, there's this readiness in me to preach the gospel. I wonder how many of us today can say, right now, in the face of crises, my conviction is that I want to take every opportunity that I have to preach the gospel. I am eager. I am ready to take every opportunity God brings to my attention. I wonder how many of us can express the heart of Paul. Well, he was an apostle. Listen, he was a man operating by the grace of God. He was empowered by the Spirit of God. His heart was no different than ours as believers as far as what was energizing him. Who was energizing him? We ought to have this sense of eagerness to preach the gospel. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul could have been tempted in that culture where people could point to the preaching of the gospel and say, wow, what a primitive message. What is this message of the cross concerning this criminal, as we many of us have heard, Jesus Christ? He could have been ashamed, timid about preaching Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed of the gospel. Why? Verse 16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know why I'm not ashamed, embarrassed of the gospel? Because I've seen its power to deliver people from the penalty and the punishment of God's wrath and judgment. He goes on to expand upon the wrath of God in chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Paul had witnessed the power of God to deliver people from the, from the penalty of their sin and from sin's grip and power. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Corinth was yet another idolatrous and immoral culture, so sinful that some of those sins had even infiltrated the church. The church had been impacted. So Paul writes to the church at Corinth to deal with various issues. And one of the issues that he deals with right off the bat is the issue of division. Look at chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, at Corinth, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Even Jesus was one option for them to herald. Not the unrivaled one. Verse 14, 
or verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Some of them were boasting about who baptized him even, as far as these leaders go. I thank God, verse 14, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. And here it is, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul says it's not about you heralding one leader above another. Take your eyes off of those leaders and put your eyes where they belong on Jesus Christ, the exalted one, the unrivaled one. And that's what I came for. I came to preach the word of the cross. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross, that's parallel to the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Isn't that a fact? Paul saw it in his day that people were being delivered and rescued from the dominion of their sin. And brothers and sisters, all we have to do is look around in this parking lot right now. And if I were to ask you one by one to come up here, if you're a believer, and share the testimony of what the Lord has rescued you from and delivered you from, boy, we would have stories to tell, wouldn't we? From our thoughts, our motives, our pursuits, our aspirations, to some of the stupid stuff that we did and said, how we hurt other people. We've experienced how the word of the cross, that message of the gospel, has the power to deliver us from punishment, the punishment of our sin, and from sin's grip, its power. Amen? Paul understood this. Whether Rome, the capital of the empire, or Corinth, a pagan culture, the answer was the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was to be of first importance. It was to be primary. And you say, why are you harping on this so much? Because I am concerned, brothers and sisters, that for many believers, not only in our dear church, but around our country and all over the world, many Christians have really lost their way. And the primacy of the gospel is not really in action, our priority. We might give lip service to it. You want to talk about Jesus? But you hardly ever share the truth of the gospel with anybody. You don't take those opportunities to shine forth the light of Christ. You are isolated even within your isolation. Maybe you have non-believing family members. And some of us have become ashamed of the gospel, embarrassed of the gospel. We need to return again to the gospel's power. That this is the answer. If you take anything from this point right now. Take this. Christianity alone has the most comprehensive worldview that addresses all of the questions that people are asking and searching for whether they know it or not right now. It is a comprehensive worldview that answers all of the, the, the key questions right now that people need, to, need answers to. Where did things come from? I'll tell you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What went wrong? The fall. Genesis chapter 3. We have entered into a state of brokenness because of the sin of Adam. Romans chapter 8. The whole creation has been subjected to futility, to vanity. Why? Because of the sin of Adam. 
What is presently wrong with the world around us? Sin, brokenness as a result of the fall. That is what's taking place in our world. What is the solution to this problem? Well, it's certainly not in us. We cannot save ourselves. No amount of good works can save you. We all fall short of the glory of God. Salvation doesn't exist from within. Salvation doesn't exist with self-actualization, self-fulfillment, career, money, materialism. None of those things. Practicing religion, external religion, devoid of heart. None of those things save you. You cannot measure up to God's perfect standard of holiness. Salvation alone is found in the Redeemer of mankind, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man. The man what? Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Amen? Christ, the Redeemer, He is the solution. He is the one who comes to rescue mankind. He is the one who died on the cross in the place of sinners and paid for sin. He is the one that conquered the great enemies of sin and death by rising from the dead on the third day. Christ is the good news. He is the solution to mankind's problem of sin and fallenness and hatred and brokenness, brothers and sisters. Why are we withholding the sharing or the preaching of the gospel, whether verbally or by social media, and emphasizing peripheral, secondary matters that may be very important matters to fight for, but not above the primacy of the gospel? We must live by the conviction that the gospel is the main thing. Not one thing amongst many other things that we emphasize. It's not secondary or peripheral. It's not a footnote on the story of our lives. It is our life. Christ is our life as Christians. And that should flow from the way that we speak, our priorities, the way that we use our time, how we reach out to other people using every opportunity that we have right now, especially brothers and sisters, in times of great crises in our country, we need to be speaking forth the truth of Christ. He's the only hope for humanity. It's the gospel that is able to save a person from their sins. Salvation from sin, brothers and sisters, is man's greatest need right now. The greatest need that people have right now is to be made right with God, their creator. To live out their purpose of glorifying their creator, God, the one true God and only God, and enjoy him in this life and forevermore. That can only happen when they repent of their sins, they turn from their sins, and they put their trust in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. But even for us as believers, beyond being rescued from the penalty of our sin, it's the gospel that continually empowers us to live holy lives. We return again and again to the gospel. Only the gospel can make a difference, brothers and sisters. The gospel is the reason why one day when Jesus returns, all of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, have put their trust in him, will reign with him in a new heavens and the new earth. We know how things end. We know how the story ends. God wins. Amen? God wins because of Jesus. Is the gospel the greatest conviction of your life right now? And don't tell me what you know intellectually. Don't tell me about all the facts that you know about Jesus. 
Are you living that way? Are you bringing the good news of the person and the work of Jesus to bear upon your relationships? And that doesn't mean that in every opportunity that we get, we're calling people to repentance and faith and that that's all we ever talk about in a minute of gospel um, sharing. Obviously, we do it in the flow of life, don't we? In our home, in our marriages, with our children, with neighbors, people that we're interacting with on social media. Are we keeping the priority of the gospel on the forefront? I want to ask you an honest question that I want an honest answer for. Do you see yourself, your existence on earth as a believer, to be for the advancement of the gospel? Is that why you're here? Because that's what the Word of God tells us as believers. That's why we're here, to advance the cause of Christ, to advance the gospel. You know, some of us have made life choices. People have asked me often, what, what, what caused you to go into the pastorate? Well, one, it's a specific calling. Not everybody is called to be a pastor, yes. But the other thing is, I cannot imagine anything else for me personally that I want to devote my life more to than the preaching of the gospel and to be a minister of the gospel. Do that moment by moment every single day. I cannot imagine. I feel like I'm living the dream right now. I cannot imagine doing anything different. You say, well, of course you say that. And of course, some of the other pastors, I'm sure, who, by the way, some of these guys are some of the most talented, um, um, scholarly guys that I've ever met. I mean, we have pastors on staff that have more degrees than you can think of. Very intelligent men, very, very capable men. And guess what? They've chosen the path of being ministers of the gospel, being full-time missionaries, ministering to kids in the context of a church, evangelizing families, evangelizing kids, training men on a global basis. Why do we do that? Well, because you guys are pastors. Of course you're called to that. Listen, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that you, believer, have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You belong to Jesus, and Jesus has called you to be a minister of the gospel Christian if you're a follower of Christ. So this is all of us. All of us. I can't tell you this enough, beloved. We are not here on earth just to have fun. The living for Christ is the funnest thing that you can possibly do, even in the midst of the challenges. Amen? Boy, that was a very weak amen. Amen? I believe that with all of my heart. I mean, ministry and being a believer is the most challenging thing, and it's the most exhilarating thing at the same time. It's the most joyful thing to follow Christ. We have not been placed on earth to just get an education, earn a great living. Christ can certainly use that and will use that. We are not here on this earth to just accumulate worldly possessions, though God may definitely choose to bless you that way. Why? So that you could spend it on yourself? No, so that you might invest it into the kingdom of God. We are here, brothers and sisters, to advance the gospel to preach Christ, to share Christ, to see Christ formed in people. This is our mission. And in the face of crises, my prayer and my hope for you as your pastor is that we would not lose sight of that. And I can tell you that it's very easy to do that because it's easy for me to do that. 
to focus on the problems, to focus on the issues, to focus on everything that seems to be changing in our country constantly, to trust in government, to trust in politicians, to trust in the next party that's going to be in power. Who knows? It's so easy to do that, even unconsciously. And yet our trust is to be in Christ and in His gospel. So what are you here for? Is life about you or is it about Christ? Because if it's about Christ, then it's going to show in your priorities, how you use your resources, how you spend your time, how you minister to others, how you even during this time walk in unity with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the passages that has been so instrumental in my life the last few years, you guys know this, Five years ago, we went through some pretty difficult times as a church. Some difficult things happened. And Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, was so huge for me as a pastor and as just a Christian, a follower of Christ. Where Paul in that passage, in Philippians 1, 14 through 18 in particular, talks about ministry rivals. Christian preachers, who as he's in jail as he writes to the church at Philippi, are preaching Christ, but they're doing it from wrong motivations, possibly to hurt him. And Paul says, what do I do about this? There are preachers who are preaching Christ faithfully, and then there are these other guys who are preaching Christ, but they seem to be doing it out of wrong motivations, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment, he says. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, he says. And in this, in that Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. Even with the issue of unity in the church, the problem, the heart issue with us when we, find, when we are divided and there's dissension amongst us is pride at the heart level, but it is also this losing sight of the primacy of the gospel so that everything becomes subordinate to that greater progress of preaching Christ and making Christ known. So we need to be praying that as a church, we would be about these things. That we would have as a conviction to be about the gospel of Christ. Well, last but not least, conviction six is the centrality of the church. The centrality of the church. Has the church been central to your life during this quarantine, all of these difficult things in our country? Listen to what Tabiri, Pastor Tabiri Anabawal says about the church. When I say the local church is essential and critical, I mean essential and critical the way a pacemaker is essential and critical to a person with a diseased heart. You can't live without it. When I say the church is essential and critical, I mean essential and critical the way a nursing mother is to an infant. You won't grow and be nourished without it. When I say the church is essential and critical, I mean the essential and critical the way a husband and wife's loyalty and fidelity is essential and critical to a loving marriage. You cannot love without it. The local church is to be the central set of relationships of belonging to our spiritual lives. To put it more, to put it negatively, if membership or connectivity in a local church is not central to your daily life, to your daily living, then you are slowly, perhaps imperceptibly, starving, shriveling, and becoming loveless, even if you don't feel it, end quote. 
That is so true. I've seen it in my life, and I've seen it in the lives of many people. You must live by the conviction that the church is central. Hear me. If the gospel is the fuel that makes everything go, then the church is the bus, the vehicle fueled by the gospel. We can't go anywhere or be everything that God wants us to be without his church, without the bride of Christ. Why is the church so important? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. Look at this. We saw the parallel passage of Matthew 16 a few, seems like years ago now, a few months ago in Mark chapter 8. In Matthew 16, in the context here is Jesus having just asked his disciples, what is the popular opinion concerning me? What do people, who do people say that I am? And they gave him various opinions. And then Jesus gets pinpointed with his disciples and he says, but who do you disciples say that I am? Matthew 16 and verse um, 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Wow, what a, what a confession. This is everything that Jesus had been, had been leading them to. To even on the basic level confess who he is in his person. Verse 17, And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What a promise. Jesus says to Peter, uh, upon that confession, that's what he means by upon this rock, this bedrock, this foundation of Peter's confession concerning who Jesus is. Upon that foundation, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The church, brothers and sisters, is the only entity that Jesus directly promised would prosper and endure on earth. Only the church of Christ. Only the church. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of Hades will not have victory over my church. And boy, for 2,000 years, this has shown to be true, hasn't it? There have been government officials that have opposed the church over the history of our existence. There have been rulers and kings, heretics, persecutors, plagues, sickness, all kinds of things that have plagued the church, if you will. And through all of that, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the fulfillment of Jesus' promise here and his endorsement of his church and his guarantee of the church that it would never be overpowered, has continued to progress through all the centuries. It's the unstoppable church. The unstoppable church. So Jesus promises and endorses and guarantees the existence of his church. And I want to remind us this morning, God is not primarily working through social work, though that is valuable in a certain sense, within a certain perspective. God is not primarily working through government, parties of government, through policies of government, through politicians. He certainly uses those and uses nations for his purposes. 
But ultimately, it's not in government we trust, right? It's in God we trust who works primarily through his church, his redeemed people, to bring about his purposes. It's through the church that God is displaying his glory right now. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Where the Apostle Paul is telling us about his role or his place in the plan of God. Ephesians chapter 3. Great text of scripture. Ephesians 3 and verse 8. Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. And here it is, verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The mystery that Paul speaks about here is the church, this new living entity, living organism called the church that was birthed at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Paul says, I am a steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, am, I have a role to play in this mystery, this new living entity called the church. And he says it's through the church that the manifold wisdom, the multifaceted, multicolored wisdom of God is being made known through the church. So mark it. Paul was called to preach the gospel. And as the gospel was preached, the church was built so that the glory of God seen in God's wisdom was shown and displayed to evil forces. The church is the primary entity through which God is revealing His glory, brothers and sisters. Go with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. These are Jesus' final words to His disciples after having appeared to them over a period of 40 days, proving His physical, visible resurrection in bodily form. These are His final words. Have you ever thought about your final words? If the Lord was going to take me away out of this earth, what would I want to say to my family? What would be those things that, that I would want to leave with them? You ever thought about that? Final words are important, aren't they? These are Jesus' final words in a different sense than our departure, obviously, because He is ascending after this, but He's promising to return. But this is what He wants His disciples to focus on. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. They had just asked him about Israel's restoration and the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. He says, Don't focus on that. This is to be your focus. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. That's the word from which we get martyr. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and then all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Paul says, or, or, or Jesus says, don't worry about the exact timing of Israel's restoration. You have a job to do. Preach the gospel. Why? So that his church would be built. And so Jesus here commissions his church to do what? To proclaim him. And boy, did they do that. In the book of Acts, we don't have time to look at all of these texts, but he, the, the church proclaimed the gospel, people were saved, the church was birthed, and the church grew. Throughout the book of Acts, there are some nine progress reports given about how the church was doing. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. 
It says that 3,000 souls came to know Christ. The church was birthed as a new entity. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. The word kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase. And then in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says that the church was continually being built up. So we have these progress reports talking about how the church was, was growing even in the face of crises, opposition, and persecution. This should give us great courage, brothers and sisters. Great courage. Because it isn't, isn't it so easy right now when you're, when you're watching things unfold before you in our country to despair and think, man, what, what is going to be constant into the future? What is not going to change? I'll tell you the fact that Jesus will reign one day with his people, his church. Amen? That's never going to change. What great confidence we should have. And I think many Christians have lost sight of this, of the the centrality of the church, of how essential the church is to our personal lives and to our mission. Let me just ask you right now, on the personal side, how committed, how connected have you remained during these hard and challenging times to the body of Christ, to God's people? The church, by the way, is not a structure, physical structure, is it? The church are the people of God, Christians, the redeemed of God. How connected and committed have you remained during this time to God's people? How much are God's people, those central relationships that you cannot do without, that you know you need to cultivate? How regular has been your fellowship, even if virtual, with other believers? Not only for your spiritual health, but for their spiritual health. To edify and build up others and to encourage others. See, I've told you before, I believe that God is showing us a lot about ourselves right now as an American church. The true Christian church here in America. I believe that God is triaging us. God is doing heart surgery for all of us. We're learning a lot about ourselves And even specifically with relation to the importance or the centrality of the church to our lives. Because, you see, for some of us, we love the church. And it shows in the fact that even virtually, you've been pursuing fellowship, service, trying to gather with others, even virtual, tuning in to the Word of God, tuning in to the singing of praises, tuning in midweek to prayer, keeping tuned in to your small groups for mutual edification. The church is central to your life. But for others of us, we're quite comfortable not gathering. We're quite comfortable living in isolation. We make all kinds of excuses for not connecting with others. And I'm not talking about those of you who cannot be physically with us even today because you're particularly vulnerable or susceptible. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those of you who have been perfectly content and even happy to not gather You're just indifferent to the whole thing. You've been disconnected. In fact, you would be okay if things stayed the same. Hear me, Christian. You need the body of Christ. God has not just called us into a a personal, private relationship with Him. He's called us also into a horizontal community with other believers. And to love God is to love his people. 
Consequently, if there's no evidence of love, no desire or passion for the church, no desire for mutual encouragement, mutual, mutual edification, and you're indifferent to the whole thing, you have reason to question whether you truly have a vertical relationship with God through Jesus Christ. At the very least, you should examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because God works primarily through his church, through his people. The church is to be central to our lives. The church is, the fact that the church is central is pertinent to even how we view family. Think about this. If what's most important to us who are married is all of it comes down to, I exist and my spouse exists to make me happy then even in happy marriages, which many of us have, and I have a wonderful happy marriage, you and I, who've been married for a while, understand this. If your end goal is that your spouse make you happy, happiness as you define it, then you're going to be discouraged, or eventually, down the line, you will abandon your spouse altogether. If your end goal is to simply, they need to satisfy all my needs... And mutual happiness, as we define it, is the goal of marriage. No, it isn't. Does God want us to have happy, joyful, fulfilled marriages? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. But brothers and sisters, marriage exists first and foremost to feature, to picture, to reflect Christ and His church. Christ and His church are ultimate and eternal, not the physical marital union here on earth. So, we stay together and we're committed for life to a covenant of marriage, desiring to make our spouse happy, yes, within biblical parameters. Why? Ultimately for the glory of Christ. That it would be a picture, our marriage of Christ and His church. What about for our parenting? What's most important for us who are parents? Is what's most important to you is that your kid would be a well-to-do, successful, financially stable, well-educated, upstanding American citizen who could vote? If you leave it at that, then you missed a point. Do we want those things? Absolutely. But ultimately, what we desire is that our kids would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ so that they might glorify God and be an intricate part of the church. That's what we desire, that they would commit their lives to the Lord and to the church. And ultimately, we know that that's in the Lord's hands, but we strive to be faithful as parents because of the ultimate goal being the glory of God. On the priority side of things, I want you to search your heart right now as we bring this to a close. What's really most important to you right now? Is it that Jesus' words would be fulfilled through you of building his church? Because you see, we are part of the means by which Christ builds his church. And I ask you to search your heart about that. Because right now I, I hear too much concern about our rights, about our freedoms. I can't say this enough because I continue to see it. Even about our discomforts. Even about justice for justice sake, with no mention of God, the gospel, or Christ. 
I hear so much about our discomforts, our us being inconvenienced by the laws of the land. And I hear very little, brothers and sisters, about the gospel, the primacy of the gospel, or the centrality of the church. And as I said last week, we have to be so careful with our Christian witness right now. We have a wonderful opportunity to shine forth the light of Christ right now. To shine forth the light of His church. That His church would be a beacon, a great testimony to this watching world. And i got to tell you, I've been so encouraged and motivated and fueled by, it seems like a, a growing number of us here in this body who are seeing these things now as a unique opportunity for the advancement of the gospel and for the church to be on the forefront of displaying the glory of God. I was so grateful with how some of you guys were were processing even this outside worship part, even in the midst of the heat and all the inconveniences that come with it, but how you were processing this as an opportunity for us to praise the Lord outside for our neighbors to know what we do inside of that building every Sunday morning, that many of them would never step into this building, but now they get to see it and hear it outside. And for them to even scratch their heads and say, wow, in the midst of heat and all of that, and the the possibility of heat exhaustion, there they are. This God that they worship must be really, really important to them. I love the fact that some of you have been sharing your hearts about that and about uh, the testimony to our neighbors right behind us. What an opportunity. Thank you for that. And I believe right now that there's an awakening taking place spiritually. As I talk to pastors, not only in our country, but outside of our country, where believers are recognizing, you know what? We didn't bring about these circumstances. What a tremendous opportunity that we have as a church to shine forth the light of Christ through the gospel right now. I believe that God is bringing about a spiritual awakening I've been keeping a a log about all of the wonderful things I'm seeing uh, about the universal church, not only in our country, but around the world. I have had the opportunity, as I'm sure you have, to log on to Facebook, to YouTube, and other means, and hear men from all over the world share amazing devotions and sermons. How many of you have listened to some international pastors and missionaries? I know many of you have. Not only the common preachers of, of our country, But wow, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is amazing, is unstoppable. Brothers and sisters, this is an opportunity that we need to seize upon. To be a light, to be salt and light in this world. I pray that the church would be central in your life personally. And that gathering and fellowshipping and staying connected during the week for mutual edification and encouragement will be a priority to your life. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, help us to be people who are fueled by biblical convictions. Lord, we're living in difficult times. We know that. I just pray and I ask that you would be merciful to us, that by your grace you would help us to put what we believe about you and about the truth of your word into practice. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have in our country, even now, to still worship you openly, publicly. We thank you for that. May you continue to allow us to be able to do that. And Lord, if you do not, Father, help us to, by your grace, make a stand for the truth in love. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.